0: Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. All right, all right, good morning, C4. Happy Mother's Day to all of you. We're so glad that you're joining this morning. I want to say good morning to many of you watching and listening online today. you have got a Bible this morning on your device or a paper Bible. Would you turn to the book of Acts, please? We're going to be in Acts chapter 9. As Pastor Lori was just saying, uh, the reason why we're even in the middle of this series encounters with Jesus is because actually what's happening among us. Week after week, baptism after baptism, conversation after conversation, we just get as a community to keep hearing how people are meeting Jesus for the first time, being changed by him. Some of us who have been Christians for years are actually falling in love with him all over again and being changed by him. And so in response to that we started this series called Encounters with Jesus where we're looking at Jesus and his interactions with six very different groups of people. And what's the purpose of the series? Like I've said every week here's the first thing. You actually might be the person here today or watching or listening online that I'm speaking about, and you're personally going to meet Jesus like we just talked about that person last week. Or in this series, you, if you are a Christian, are going to watch the Master, Jesus himself, interact with different types of people and learn how to respect, to honor, yet challenge and encourage people as they they try to struggle with life and purpose. The, this is a visionary series, whether you've caught it or not. The goal of this series is to prepare our church for all these different types of people that are coming and will come. So our arms will be open, and we'll be ready as Jesus keeps bringing them to us. And then, like we've been doing every week, at the end of each message, we take a moment, not out of arrogance or pride, but because we are so in love with Christ, to take a moment to pray for this type of person across our region. Now, two weeks ago, we began the series, and we had the conversation about one of the hardest people to bring to Jesus. And we found out it's not the usual suspect, at least in our mind. We found out, and we know it's true that people that find Jesus Unreasonable and very dangerous to who they are are actually good people. Good, moral, kind, nice people, whether secular, deeply religious, or spiritual in the middle. When they really hear what Jesus is teaching, they actually feel quite threatened by him because he actually teaches time and time again that being spiritual or civically involved or kind or good or religious never will give you access to God in any way, shape, or form. We looked at the story of Nicodemus, a very intellectual, professor-like person who was also civically involved, deeply religious, was very good, and yet was lost all at once. Then last week, we shifted the sort of to another part of the table. We looked at the opposite of Nicodemus. We moved from a supposed insider to a supposed outsider. And, and we looked at Jesus' conversation with a woman who had just been caught in adultery. And that was also shocking, if you had ears to hear, because all the people that were against her, Jesus, showed them their sin and then said to the woman that she was no longer condemned, but then called her to a radical new life when, she, when he said to her, go and Sin no more. Well, today we're not going to look like at an insider or an outsider. We're going to look at someone who actually doesn't fit any of these categories. We're going to look at someone who hates Jesus. We're going to look at someone who hates Christians. We're going to look at an enemy. Social media has changed our world radically for the good and the bad. But not only that, we have access to things and information that no generation in history has ever had. We've watched the world tumble again into chaos like it does all the time. But all of us, I think, our middle-class sensibilities have been shocked, threatened, assaulted, as we've seen groups like ISIL or ISIS take ground across the Middle East. Now, for Christians, what's even been more shocking is that now we would have the ability to go online and actually watch someone murder someone else in graphic detail because they were Christians. We heard about this. We, we've recorded this for centuries. We, we had emails about this. But now, as we've been watching on CNN, CBC, Twitter, BBC, fill in the blank, you can actually watch someone else murder a Christian because they're a Christian. We watched it in Limeo, right? 21 Coptic Christians beheaded. You can watch a crucifixion if you really want online. We, you can go and watch a woman get stoned for adultery online. Now, this has really shocked us. This horrifies us. We, it is a complex, dangerous world. It hasn't changed, by the way. We just have access to it now. But I want to remind us this morning, sitting here in a very safe church in a very great country, that it is in that environment that our movement began Christianity, first and foremost, was birthed out of an unjust murder of a person named Jesus who was crucified. And not only that, our movement spread because of what we're literally watching online today. Our movement was birthed in the middle of injustice, birthed in and out of religiously informed hate and murder. So many of us, when we watch this, we make these arrogant statements saying, oh, those people must be so stupid and dumb. No, no, let me reassure you. Many of those people are very smart, deeply educated, and also are deeply religious. But their view of God is taking them in a wrong direction. Now, if there is one archetype in the New Testament of a modern day or an ancient day ISIL character, it is a man named Saul of Tarsus. Now, if you've got a Bible, like I said, we're going to be in Acts 9. But the story doesn't begin in Acts 9. The story begins in Acts 7. The story begins in what I'll coin the first dark night night of the soul for the church. It starts with the murder of a man named Stephen, a Christian just like many of you. Now, we read this, but now because we have access to it live, it brings it home. It says that Stephen was preaching about the uniqueness of Jesus, And he was before the Sanhedrin. We talked about them two weeks ago. And it says in verse 54 of chapter 7, when the members of the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish council of the day, heard what he was saying, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. Don't forget that phrase. The glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen said, look. I see heaven open, and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. And at this, they covered their ears, they started yelling at the top of their voices, and they all rushed at him. And they dragged him out of the city, and they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses who were doing this laid their coats at the feet of a young man named, don't forget this word and this name, Saul. Saul. Now, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold their sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. That is a very kind way of saying he was murdered and died. It's very Canadian, wouldn't you say? He was murdered. So Saul is standing there. And as these men, by the way, as we learned two weeks ago, are actually breaking Roman law because they're not allowed to take life. They actually gather their coats so blood doesn't get on them in front of Saul. I want you to picture this in your mind because too much of the time we read scripture and we do not let it truly sink in. The circle closes in around a young man named Stephen, the first stone thrown striking maybe the left side of his head, exposing uh, bone, blood flowing freely, landing at the feet of the accusers. He looks up, maybe unable to see out of one of his eyes. And at that moment, he does a profound thing. He trusts his very soul, his eternity, his life, and his very essence to the one that loved him and who he loved. Lord Jesus, he cried out, you receive my spirit. More stones, more carnage, more violence. Death is now closing in. His life is actually leaving his body. And having a little strength, he utters one last prayer. Not a prayer for revenge. Not a prayer for judgment. He does not curse his enemies with his deformed, broken mouth as he lays dying. No, no. He says one thing. Oh, Jesus, don't hold their sin against them. He imitates the one he loves. For as Jesus himself on Good Friday lay dying, he almost utters the exact same things to his father. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There is nothing more powerful, more profound, more life-changing, more unearthly, than when a Christian looks at injustice and says, I love you anyway because Jesus loved me first. Stephen cries out, Oh, Jesus, don't hold this sin against them. And Jesus hears his prayer and responds in Acts 9. Jesus chooses not to hold Saul's sin against him. See, God now sovereignly seizes time itself. He, he breaks through. He changes the course of history now by choosing to forgive and touching his enemy, the murderer of his children, Saul, whose later would become his name would become Paul. Acts 9 1. Meanwhile, two chapters later, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. An outright persecution began. Christians were being hunted. But that expression, murderous threats, is a powerful image in the original language. It comes from an Old Testament idea of a wild animal or an unbridled animal who is out of control, who will trample you if you get too close. And the image actually focuses in on the nostrils of a horse that is absolutely flaring as it kicks and bites. And it says that this man was like that. It says that Saul went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anyone who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem Saul takes initiative. Saul is a natural born leader. By the way, if you know the story of Saul, he is brilliantly educated, probably to the level of two PhDs. Saul doesn't just make threats. He does what needs to be done. And his goal is simple. He needs to pursue, root out, destroy this growing aberration of Judaism before it changes too many not satisfied with the results of death the death of Stephen and the capture of many Christians still anxious to do more for God and faith and country Saul goes to the only one in his world that has authority the high priest now in 6 AD historians tell us that the Roman provincial courts gave the high priest and the sanhedrin authority over every Jew and the Roman empire to enforce their own laws And so Saul now goes to this high priest. Now here's what's even more striking. He goes to the high priest called Caiaphas. Who's Caiaphas? Caiaphas is the one that helped orchestrate the murder and death of Jesus. And Saul wants one thing. He wants to go to Damascus in modern-day Syria, and he wants to take every Christian that he can and get rid of them. Whether by injury, intimidation, kidnapping, or killing, he's going to get the job done. Now, do you notice what he calls the church? He calls us the way. This is the first name for our movement, even before the word Christian. Christian was actually an insult that we loved and took. But the way was used by our spiritual grandparents because it reminded them of what Jesus claimed about himself. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. It's exactly what Peter preached in Acts chapter 4 where he said salvation is found in nobody else for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. One name, one savior, one faith, one way, one door, one movement. Well, back to the story, back to fear, back to being hunted, back to pride, religious blindness, back to Paul, or Saul... It says as Saul near Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Paul is now on a 242-kilometer journey, and then this act happens. This event, other than the death and resurrection of Jesus, is one of the most impactful of all in all of human history. The Holy Scripture says right here that a light from heaven flashed around him. Now, we know from the other accounts and acts it took place around noon. So this light is brighter than the noonday sun in desert-like conditions. Not only that, it seems in the original language, it says that this light is actually filled with lightning. So this is an unnatural, powerful, blinding, overcoming light that flashes around and blinds Saul. The grand undoing has begun. Now the light from heaven was nothing more than the glory of God. If you read the Bible from beginning to end, there are 275 references to the glory of God. The glory of God is the splendor of God, the beauty of God, the magnificence of God, the very essence that radiates and and raptures out of him. It is always overwhelming. It is always overcoming. It is always filled with fire, light, or lightning. This glory was experienced at the giving of the Ten Commandments. This glory was actually experienced by the people of God as they wandered in the wilderness by pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. When the tabernacle and the temple were both dedicated, this same light experience, the very presence of God showed up. When Moses used to go meet with God like a friend speaks to a friend, this experience was his normal experience, the transfiguration of Jesus. But not only that, did you catch the connection? This is the same glory that Stephen saw Jesus standing in. Isaiah, Ezekiel, all of them experienced this glory. And now, this morning, we see clearly, and Saul also sees, that Jesus Christ is at the center of the Shekinah glory of God, the dwelling manifest presence of God. So let me, can I just preach for a moment? Oh, the truth and the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ. He is not just a truth in our movement. He is the truth. Because he stands at the center of the glory, manifest revelation of God. This is why we hold at the core of our being that Jesus is beyond teacher. He's not just reduced to prophet. He is more than leader. He is more than moral revolutionary. Jesus Christ is Yahweh in flesh. He is Elohim. He is the great I am. He is the one that walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. He is the alpha and the omega, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. When you see the manifest glory of God, you will always see Jesus the Nazarene. And so Saul, this brilliant brilliant man, looks into the glory of the God that he has spent his life supposedly worshiping. And it says that Saul, verse 4, fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not just light, not just vision, not just encounter and presence, but now voice. The one standing, it's amazing if you read it, the one standing in the middle of the glory of God speaks in Aramaic, not in Greek or Hebrew. He speaks in the native tongue of Jesus, and oh, do you notice, he knows Saul by name. This phenomena was called by the rabbis of the day, the heavenly echo. And now Saul is experiencing it. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I'm sure confused, dazed, scared, out of control. This enemy of heaven who thought he was actually heaven's friend and messenger musters up the ability to speak. I'm sure it was not out of courage, but it was out of adrenaline. And he says this, who are you? And it reads in Greek. God heart pounding soiled clothes waiting, wondering if this would be the very end of his existence. All his ambitions, his persecutions, his dreams, his vast education, his political and religious connections, his ability to speak multiple languages, all human favor, all friendships that made him something meant nothing at this point. Facing like death, you're alone. What to do? What would happen? And then to his horror, then to his DNA, he hears Something he never ever thought he would want to hear or would ever hear. The one who is God, who is revealing himself, says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The epiphany quickly would begin to sink in. Can you imagine what Saul is thinking? Jesus is alive. Jesus is in the middle of the Shekinah glory of God. Everything. Everything I thought, everything I believed in, everything I held to is incomplete, is off, is missing something. I am undone. I am wrong. I am overcome. It was the great church father, Origen, who summarized these words like this. Everyone who betrays a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, is actually reckoned as betraying Jesus himself. Notice. Lean in close. Observe. Jesus is not saying, why are you attacking my people? Why did, you, why did you participate in Stephen? No, no. Why are you persecuting me? Saul, you have been hounding me. You have been pursuing me. You are harassing me. You are hunting me. You are bullying me. You're discriminating against me. You are attacking me. Me, but now I have come for you. Jesus' suffering is not fake or allegory, it's real. Because every single Christian, globally, at all times, is always connected to their head, Jesus Christ. We truly are the body of Christ. It is this encounter that actually sets the groundwork for Paul's greatest teaching on the church in 1 Corinthians 12.1. He says, the body is a unit, though it's made up of many parts, and though all of its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ, for we have all been baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we are all given one spirit to drink. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. I'm sure to Saul's surprise and to us as readers, the God that he was attacking didn't kill him. But instead of killing Saul on the spot, gives him a task task that is redemptive, merciful, forgiving, life-altering, not only for him, but billions of us later. We're all sitting here because of this encounter. Now get up, Jesus said, and go into Damascus, and you will be told what you must do by the way, this is not suggestion. You got that right. It's command. And it assumes that Paul, Saul is going to obey because he's really been changed. And as we see from this moment forward, this life altering change has begun. See, this encounter is real conversion. It is the full conversion to the full form of Judaism. This is a conversion of his will, intellect, emotion, the very essence of who he is. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. I bet you they did. They heard the sound, but they couldn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he tried opening his eyes, he could see nothing, so they led him by the hand into Damascus. Like being near a terrible explosion, the culmination of this divine experience not only affects Paul, but those who are around him. They all are speechless. Now, Saul, in the encounter, tries getting up off the ground. The presence of God was so forceful it physically overwhelmed him. And now, as God's presence begins to subside, he tries to rise. The instinctive reflex we all have as humans is when there is bright light, we try shielding or closing our eyes. But now as he tries to get up off the ground and tries opening his eyes, he cannot see. God chooses physically to demonstrate what his spiritual condition truly is. He is blind, he is misguided, and he needs direction. Oh, the humbling that has begun. The strong, powerful, religiously informed intimidator, the persecutor, the great theologian is now humbled, confused, and blind. The strong visionary for his movement now has to be led to the place where he intended to do great damage by the hand of others. Three days. It says three days he was blind and he did not eat or drink anything. It wasn't that he was just sort of recovering in a hospital-like state because of the ferocity of the encounter, though true. This is a Jewish man who is repenting. He is fasting and praying because as he sat there, now blind, the enormity of his sin grew more and more and more and more and more because he understood that he did not understand. I'm sure the words that haunted him the most were not Jesus' words, but Gamaliel's. See, if you read the Bible closely, Paul was privileged to sit under Rabbi Gamaliel. There were two bright stars in Paul's day, and he was one. And he sat under Gamaliel, the great scholar-teacher And Gamaliel was present when the Jesus movement began. And this is what Gamaliel actually said to the whole Sanhedrin back in chapter 5. He says, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or, or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if this is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself, notice, fighting against God. And it happened. The story, like a great movie, suddenly moves away from Saul sitting alone, blind, and opens another scene to another person named Ananias. We find out that the Christian movement already independently has made it to Damascus because after the death of Stephen, Christians ran for their lives and brought the gospel everywhere they ran. And it says in verse 10, In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord, that's Jesus, called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Ananias answered, Now he says, Ananias, I'm going to make you my hands and feet to the killer of the faithful. This encounter is very reminiscent of Samuel as a child in the temple. The Lord said to Ananias, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named Tarsus, uh, for for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying in a vision. He has seen a man named Ananias come, place his hands on him to restore his sight. Now, I found this out this week. I didn't know this. Straight Street was very famous in the ancient times. It was at the heart of Damascus. It had great porches, great gates, and it was the height of high fashion for the Roman world. In other words, this is Yorkville in Toronto. This is Regent Street in London. This is Fifth Avenue in New York. Rodeo Drive LA. This is the Million Dollar Mile in Chicago. I love this. God's next great move would happen in another unexpected place. The Spirit of God is about to be poured out in the middle of high fashion. God, at the same time that he appears to Ananias, appears back to Saul and says, just so you know, here's how you know it's going to work out. There's a guy coming named Ananias. He's going to put his hands on you. It's going to be okay. Now, most of us, when we think if we ever saw a vision of Jesus with instructions, we'd be very excited and we'd respond with great joy and just do it, right? But here's the honest truth. This is how Ananias responds to Jesus, who he loves. Um, hmm, Lord... Uh, mm, I've heard reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And oh, by the way, I know you know everything, but let me remind you, he's come with the authority of the chief priest to arrest all of us who call on your name. That's me and my family too, so there's no way I'm going. He argues with the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He says to the living Jesus, no, do you know who this guy is? This is the guy who's hunting us. And by the way, Jesus hates you. So what's the deal with this? Now, understand, genuine debate with God is good. Jeremiah, David, Job, Moses, Abraham, all those who love God very well, always wrestle with him. But just remember, at the end of the day, you're going to lose the conversation. So God says, the Lord says to Ananias, here's his response, go. This man... I love this, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles, the non Jews, and their kings, and before the people of Israel. Go, no more conversation. This is my will. Saul is my chosen instrument, my chosen vessel. I'm the author, not Saul. I'm the author, not you. And I will do everything I want by my power alone. And since I am holy love, I never misstep. He is my chosen instrument. The fact that he hates me, and he's hated you, and he killed Stephen, doesn't matter. I have forgiven him. He will carry my name. He will be my representative. He will be my ambassador. He will be my liaison, not only to non-Jews who don't even know there's only one true living God, but also to their kings, and I'm going to take him back to my people, and they're going to find out the Messiah has come. Enemy to friend, fulfiller of God's heart. Now, why is this profound? Let me tell you why. Because Jesus said just before he ascended into heaven that the gospel was supposed to go into the whole known world. And Paul was going to do it. But it's even more exciting than that because there's a Christmas connection. When Jesus was seven or eight years, seven or eight days old, his mom and dad brought him to the temple to be dedicated. And as they did it, the priest that met him was Simeon. And Simeon, this old, old priest held baby Jesus in his arms. And he had been told that before he died, he would see the Messiah. And this is not the words he said. This is the song that Simeon broke out. And he said these words, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you can now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light of the revelation to non-Jews and for the glory of your people, Israel. Simeon's song gets fulfilled in a murderer who hates Christians. Oh, the divine conspiracy of our God. And then Jesus says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. For to follow Jesus not only is eternal life, but suffering. So Ananias went to the house, and he entered it, and he placed his hands on Saul, and he said these words, love him, brother Saul, Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again and he got up and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now baptized inwardly by the Spirit and outwardly by water, he now sees physically and spiritually the world as it truly is and he will never go back to the blindness that he so loved and thought was sight. He changes his name from Saul to Paul. And from that moment, in that room, in the middle of high fashion He begins a journey where he writes 13 books of the New Testament, spreads the good news of Jesus around the whole Roman world, and in the end, he actually dies for Jesus at the hands of people who are just like him. Question. Are you Saul? Some of you are going, well, no, I've never murdered a Christian. Oh, no. Saul comes in so many forms. Some of you here are are watching online. You are so angry at the church and Jesus because someone that appeared Christian or was hurt you, and you have spent your life now fighting against this movement. Maybe some of you watching online especially are of another religion. You're a Hindu, a Buddhist, a Muslim, a Baha'i, fill in the blank, a Wiccan, and you try intellectually sparring with Christians, spending your time trying to convince us Jesus really isn't God and he's not the only way or there's a better way, and you spend your life, you are Saul. Maybe you're an agnostic here today or atheist and you lift up the idol of science so high there is no room for revelation and you are the one who mocks Christians and looks down on Christians and you are Saul. Maybe there's another group of you here today, unbeknownst to us or watching online, maybe you are Saul because you are involved in occultism and dark arts and you hate Jesus, with everything that you are, and oh, how you hate pastors, elders, leaders in the church. You regularly pray we will fall. You are Saul. Whether you are Saul by belief, by emotion, by pain, or intellect, at this moment, unexpectedly maybe for you, Jesus has now come for you now. Jesus, so moved by love, made Saul a messenger of life, not death. And I say, again, not with my own authority, but the authority that comes from Jesus. The message of our living master to all of you that are not Christians yet is this. All of us, like Saul, used to live our life and think we were right, but we weren't. Jesus comes through people, through a word, through a sermon, through a podcast, and says to you, I've come for you. You're separated. You cannot get back. Your sin is more than you realize. And he calls you to confess him as God, to acknowledge he's died for you and that he is the only one who can bring forgiveness, to move to a state of repentance for a period where you stop trusting in your life as it is and turn to his life, his ways, and his work. Saul prayed and fasted for three days as a sign of regret and just called out for mercy. When he accepted Jesus as the Son of God and made him Savior and Lord, then the scales fell from his eyes. He now sees reality as it really is. This is the same for a group of you today. Hear this, please, because it is done not out of chastisement, but out of love. Are you willing to meet Jesus and humble yourself? Call out for relationship, mercy, second chance that offers you purpose in this life, and eternal life. And let me just say this. Be like Saul. Stop fighting heaven. You'll never win. Stop fighting Jesus. Stop attacking and and fighting his people, no matter how broken they are. Stop relying on your education, your good works, your deeply religious worldview, or your history, or your rebellion, or your self-sufficiency, or your money, or your gods that you worship, or your values, or your sexuality, or your rights, no matter how you resist the living God, he comes and loves and says, no, I am Lord. And I want you to have eternal life. This makes no sense for someone to give up everything they have learned and valued unless God is at the heart of it. And so I just want to stop, and I must stop, before I speak to we who are part of Jesus' body, and I just want to say, if you are Saul today, we already sang about it, Jerome sang it, God has come for you to set you free from yourself, to give you eternal life, and to make you a messenger of life. If you sense that this is you, bow your head at this moment, and pray this prayer. Let this be your Damascus moment. And church, really, I know I say this, and half you don't, pray. You have no clue who's watching online three days from now. And you have no clue who's sitting in this room right now. So pray for a moment. If this is you, just say, Jesus, I'm Saul. Fully knowingly or not, I have spent my life resisting you. And I'm done. I'm done. I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you died in my place. Forgive me for my Anger against you and your people. Save me. Give me eternal life. Change my name. I believe you died and rose again. I confess my sin. Let the scales fall off my eyes and let me see. I now become a follower of the one I used to fight, Jesus Christ. And I become a Christian. I say yes to the way and no to the way I was on. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Before the band starts, it's very important that I end with this. So could I please, before we take communion, have your attention. We live in a post-Christian world, and it's getting more and more interesting to be a Christian even in Canada. Would you not agree? So can I give you just some advice how to love Saul? Because we're going to need it in the next 20 years. If this is when you disconnect, this is the time you really please... Here's the four things this passage really teaches us about how to love Saul. The first thing is you pray. We pray for those who hate us. We pray for those who fight against the church. Jesus said it in the Beatitudes, right? You pray for those who persecute you. This is how you become a child of God. This is so critical that we understand this because it is going to get more and more difficult for us to love our enemies because we've actually had protection and it's leaving. So we pray for those, and not only do we pray for those that stand against us, and you all have souls in your mind right now, but there's deeper than this. We begin to pray that Jesus radically appears to people in visions and dreams. Over the last 20 years, I preached this in 2006, thousands of documented, rec- documented encounters have happened with Muslims and Hindus where they have seen Jesus in visions and they have become the greatest missionaries in our generation. When is the last time you prayed that all of heaven would break out on your enemy? <laughs> when is the last time, instead of being angry at the news or wanting to drop bombs, you said, Oh, Jesus, appear to them and make them my brother or my sister. The day those 21 were murdered on that beach, I was so angry. I said to my wife, that would be me as a pastor, like that. I was so angry, and then I stopped, and I said, Jesus, forgive them. Make those people with those knives my brother and my sister. This is how we stop them We intercede with heaven. We forgive injustice. And we remember this that when they attack Christians, they're really attacking Jesus. And we are not alone in our suffering as Christians. I end with one of the greatest stories in the last hundred years, most of you probably don't know. It's a story of a man named Sundar Singh. He was a Hindu at the beginning of the 1900s who hated Christians. He had just burned a Bible and was mocking Christians and hurting them. And after a period of hostility, just burning the Bible, this is what happened. Jesus appeared to him in a vision, and he recounts it like this on December 19th, 1904, that as I prayed, I looked into the light, and I saw the form of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was such an appearance of glory and love. If it had been some Hindu incarnation, I would have prostrated myself before it, but it was the Lord Jesus who I'd been insulting just a few days earlier. I felt like the vision uh, could not be conjured in my own imagination, and I heard a voice saying in my own tongue, how long will you persecute me? I have come to save you. You were praying to know the right way. Why do you not take it? And then the thought came to me, Jesus Christ is not dead but living. He must be himself. So I fell at his feet, and suddenly I got wonderful peace and joy. He recounts that after the vision dissipated, he said, it went, but the peace and joy I received in that moment has never left me. And he became one of the greatest spokespeople for Jesus where he lived. So would you stand now as a church, And let us with boldness and confidence celebrate that Jesus can even make our biggest enemy our brother and a sister. Can I have any amen to that? So let us pray in this moment. Lord Jesus Christ, oh, how we love you because you have loved us. Oh, the grace of God. We were all enemies, Paul wrote, and you made us friends. But in this moment, all of us in our minds have people in our heads or people we've never met who are Saul, who intellectually, emotionally, religiously hate us. And honestly, Lord, let's be honest. We're a middle-class church, and we're scared of suffering. We are. But we pray because we're praying for revival and awakening We pray for Saul in this region. Those who are so hardened against Jesus and the good work of Christ, we pray today, oh Lord, make them our brother. Make them our sister. Scales off their eyes. Lord, for those who hate us around the world, who are hurting the church right now, Forgive them, Lord. Don't hold their sin against them. Make them our brother and our sister. Oh, God, do the unnatural in our day. Nothing less than Saul to Paul. God, call them. Jesus, intercede for them. Spirit, Make them bolder than us. In the name of Jesus, and we all celebrate and say, we're gonna celebrate communion, the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you're a Christian, come and take it generously. Say, I am forgiven. If you need to confess and do it, if you're running from Jesus, don't take it unless you're willing to come home. If you're not a Christian, don't take it yet. But here's my request as we take this together. Would you pray by name, if you have one, for the Saul in your neighborhood? in your school, in your university, in your life. Take the person who you know that you know humanly would never be among us and say, Lord, him or her. Lord, bless these elements. Help us to celebrate your death and resurrection, the forgiveness of sins, resurrection from the dead, eternal life, and love that is not human. Lord, come meet your people. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.